0: You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Jake Kerr. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison.
1: And I'm Terry Mixon.
0: And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with...
1: 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for you to sit down and listen to some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never ending quest to improve our own craft.
0: Absolutely. And joining me for this, this expedition into awesomeness, none other than the Dead Robot Society co host, Master Terry Mixon. Terry, it's, it's, it's lovely, lovely, I say, to have you, uh, seated virtually beside me here in the sumptuous RTP studios, man. Thanks for making the
1: time. It's always a pleasure and an honor when you invite me onto your show. Absolutely. And we always have a
0: grand old time, you and I. But sit back, Terry. I've, I've I, I got to introduce you to somebody. This, this, please, please do. I, I, I Thank you. I certainly will. Uh, dear friends, let me introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. Now, at the age of 10, he had already acquired not one, but two passions burning in his young heart. One was music. And to indulge that love, he'd stack up 45s on a turntable and play DJ. Now, the other passion was reading, and while he didn't feel he was all that good at writing stories, he did write lengthy reviews and commentaries on the books he enjoyed. These would get typed up and stacked and stapled and then shoved into a drawer. Now, he wasn't a musician, he wasn't a writer, but he was engaging with the things that fueled his imagination— Now, that desire to write was sustained through high school. He was reading comics and feeding his love of sci-fi and fantasy with Piers Anthony and Philip K. Dick and Ray Bradbury. And he also wrote a fair stack of fan fiction set in the Dragon Riders of Pern's Storyverse. Now, rumor has it he was striving to be the next male and McCaffrey. And honestly, who didn't want to be the next Ann McCaffrey after reading those amazing books? Then he applied and was accepted to Kenyon College. And his world changed. Now, he was majoring in English and psychology. And for a kid feeding on a steady diet of fantasy and sci-fi, even good fantasy and sci-fi, this was a serious mind-blower. Now, he was feasting on Jane Austen, William Faulkner, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, devouring the classics as a whole new world of storytelling unfolded before him. Now, he was even getting into Chekhov. And, dear friends, trust me when I tell you that is a whole different level of appreciation. Now, he was also able to study under the writer-in-residence at the time, Ursula K. Le Guin, and a Peruvian playwright by the name of Alonso Alegria. Now, he was definitely drinking from the literary fire hose at this point. But as many of us know, there's a downside to being awakened to the incomparable beauty of an exquisite story, and that is that our own work tends to suffer by comparison. Now, our guest host knew all the structural nuances, the essences, the components that went into a great story, but he still didn't know how to fit the pieces together. He tried, and by his own admission, he put in well over a million words before something finally clicked. But we'll get to that in a second. In the meantime, there's bills to pay and that elusive concept of a career to pursue. He was eventually hired to move to Los Angeles and write a column about the music and radio industry. Again, combining those two passions of his youth. And he did really well. He was even called in to consult on which single Nickelback should release after Leader of Men. Now, he picked wrong, he skipped right over How You Remind Me for another track, but that didn't stop the label from sending him a platinum record for his support of the band. But you know, for some of us, once you start writing stories, you awaken something that curls itself around your brain stem and whispers in your mind. You can shut it out, but it's damned persistent. And in our guest host's case, it ultimately took 15 years before he realized writing about music just wasn't cutting it. When a former classmate wrote and informed him of the book she had just published, the correspondence awakened that inner voice, and he knew it was time for him to start writing. He connected with a gathering of writers in Dallas called the Writer's Garrett Stone Soup Critique Group, And that decision was one of the best he'd ever made. Having a sounding board of talented writers who could objectively point out weaknesses and strengths set our guest host on the path of literary awesomeness. He also attended the Viable Paradise Writers Workshop, further honing his wordly skills. Now, he'd been working on a mystery novel and another project that just wouldn't stop growing, and we'll talk more about that later, when he decided to focus on short fiction. He got a lot of rejections. His work was skirting the edges of genre, and the publishers knew it, so he resolved to write a hard science fiction piece where the science was hardwired to the emotional core of the story. Looking for inspiration, he turned to Tom Godwin's The Cold Equations. Now, the end result of this exploration was The Old Equations, an homage to that classic tale, which was published by Lightspeed Magazine in 2011. Now as the story goes apparently our guest host had lunch with john joseph adams editor of lightspeed and his then fiance christy yant shortly after the story was published now, adams loved the original godwin piece and was equally enamored of the homage our guest host had written during lunch between discussions of dnd games and whatnot apparently And friends, I got got to preface this by saying this might be pure fiction, but it was on the Internet. So it must be true by God. Apparently, Adams leaned into our guest host and informed him, I summoned the demon Harlan Ellison and told him to make sure your story was nominated for the nebula. Now, clarification, of course, was requested. You mean the author, right? But Adams was adamant, the demon. Harlan Ellison. Now, friends, you can take from that what you will, but the old equations would go on to be nominated for a nebula and shortlisted for the Theodore Sturgeon Award. Now more short fiction would follow, published in Fireside Magazine, Escape Pod, IO9, and the Unidentified Funny Objects anthology of humorous sci-fi. He returned to the pages of Lightspeed two more times, one for Requiem in the Key of Prose in 2012 and again in 2013 with Biological Fragments of the Life of Julian Prince. Now that last piece was fortuitously timed. It was an epistolary narrative comprised of future Wikipedia pages after an apocalyptic event. Now at the time, John Joseph Adams and Hugh Howey were pulling together writers for their apocalypse triptych and our guest host was invited to expand on the world he had created in two of the apocalypse anthologies. Now, remember that other project he was working on years ago the one that just kept growing well that was a novel that just wouldn't die eventually through the tireless efforts of our guest host and the writers garrett critique group and nearly one hundred thousand words of rewrites it was finished tommy black and the staff of light was ready to be shopped around it was a middle grade novel and was very well received but was just fringe enough that publishers didn't want to take the risk in publishing it. So our guest host created Currents and Tangents as his self-publishing imprint, and he did it himself. Tommy Black and the Staff of Light is available at all fine ebook outlets. And our guest host is available right now here in the luxurious RTP virtual studio. So, dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the Roundtable Podcast, our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes with Jake Kerr. Jake, dude, I know the, the the trials and tribulations you went through to get to this podcast, and I am deeply grateful for that and for you making the time uh, to, to share some thoughts with us. We appreciate it, sir. All
2: right. All I can say is the check will definitely clear now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. See, and that's that's. Terry, that's all I'm going for, man. I just want the checks to clear, dude. I
2: don't need the benjamins. <laughs>
0: that's right, because that's what we're about here in podcasting. We're in this for the money.
2: <laughs> I, I I feel like I'm ready to die because my uh, my you know
0: eulogy has just. <laughs> <laughs> the irony is that you're not the first person to mention that you want me to eulogize you in the future. Uh, uh, we have a special plan that you can sign up for. It's a mild monthly fee, and, and I'll be there for you. So, now before we set the clock, Jake, before we dive into this, I I gotta ask the demon Harlan Ellison. Seriously just just between us three and the you know, three or four fans who are tuning in. Is
2: that what happened? Normally normally I don't tell this story because but since it's just us three and I know it won't go past the, uh, the <laughs> secret studio. That's show,
0: exactly. Exactly.
2: You, you've got it kind of right. Um, you know, uh, John accepted the story and I went off. Uh, I was doing I had business in Los Angeles and I went up to talk with uh, and I, I since I was around where he lived, I said, hey, you want to get together for lunch on a Saturday? And he said, yeah. So we had lunch, and he was telling me the story how he was putting together a, uh, an anthology. And uh, this is really his story to tell, but since it's us three, I'll, I'll share it with you.
0: Thank and you. thank
2: it's, you. Uh, it's unrelated to my story, so that, that bit is fiction. Um, he was uh, trying to get a hold of Harlan Ellison to get Wright's first story, and uh, Harlan's agent was like, uh, he doesn't do email, so uh, just fax him. uh, of course he he doesn't you know he he didn't get his phone number either he had to fax harlan ellison so john would type up these notes and then fax harlan and then like a minute later or 45 seconds later the phone would ring and then it was harlan ellison on the phone so john john (laughs) would like go to his fax machine whenever he needed something from harlan and fax a question to him and then the phone would ring like 30 seconds later and john's telling me the story and he's like I, I, I felt like whenever I went to the fax machine, I was summoning this demon Harlan Ellison because he would always up <laughs> on the phone. So it's a it's a great story, and uh, uh, that's kind of uh, that was told to me at that uh, at that lunch. So okay, it was, it was a lot of fun.
0: All right, it's 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 the summon summon Harlan demon spell. It's a fifth level spell. So we're,
2: I, we're, I I keep telling John that I'm going to write a story uh, someday uh, uh, summoning the demon Harlan Ellison that's based on that.
0: <laughs> I think that's rich story food right there. That's got to happen.
2: It's a really great story, and, and it really does kind of illustrate Harlan Ellison's kind of. You, you know, you kind of think of him as always have, you know, he could be like, uh, you know, locked in a basement in somewhere and he'll still have his pulse on the politics of the US and, and what's going on in science fiction land. And yet at the same time, he's like this crotchy old dude. So you're like, you send him the facts and then, you know, 30 seconds later, you get a phone call and he's talking like he
1: just <laughs>
2: stepped out of... uh you know meet the press or something
0: he's so. he's like the he's like the howard hughes of genre fiction really all right let's dive into this i want I want, I want to get into my 20 minutes with jake i'm, Dude,
2: I'm a storyteller i got more stories to tell let's, all
0: right well we're gonna we're gonna prompt you for a couple right here let me let me set the timer and and just so we can ignore it but there we go all right we're set now jake my first question for you is this um um yeah. Looking at your short fiction that has uh, uh, achieved some notoriety, I'm looking at The Old Equations, which has a very unique narrative style. I mean, technically, when you think about it, it's it's nonlinear almost uh, uh, as you're skipping through the time streams. You've got uh, uh, Requiem in the Key of Prose, which was brilliant and this wonderful... Telling a single story using every good and bad uh, prose technique neatly bracketed so we all knew exactly what you were doing at that point. And then uh, bi- biographical fragments uh, of the life of Julian Prince is is an epistolary piece. Uh, uh, you seem to have no fear of, of exploring very, very fringe narrative styles and making it work. Is this... Are you exploring? Are you still a a young adventurer on the on the path of of
2: storytelling or or is there is there an agenda here? What are you what are you working towards? It's it's a it's a good question. One of the things that uh, and, and there's really no consistent answer. And, and let me go through bit by bit and you kind of start to see where it came from. I, I guess the first answer is that, yeah, there really is no fear. You know, I, I you kind of kindly went through my past and and, uh, and talked about, you know, I, I have a, gr- a, a pretty deep exposure to a lot of different genres and a, and a lot of different writers. And one of the things that really kind of, and since we're talking about craft, this is highly relevant, one of the things that really saddens me about what you see in genre, part of it is due to the commercialization, uh, you know, that's required of it, but part of it certainly isn't due to that, it's just habit, and that is, you know, there's a big writer's toolbox, and and genre writers tend not to use the full toolbox. You know, we see, uh, you know, certainly Kitch Johnson does, there's there's a handful of writers that will, uh, and we, we call them experimental, but really what they're doing is the, the 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 proper way to tell the story, they use the tools to tell the story. They're not trying to like experiment per se just for the sake of experimentation. They have a goal in mind, and those are the proper tools to do it. The fact that we're not comfortable with those tools is really indicative of the habits and fashion of genre more so than than any kind of uh, uh, literary uh, courage, as it were. You know, so, you know, and I'll give you an example of that, but just kind of a short walk through my fiction. So you mentioned the old equations. Now, I I, I really was meant to be uh, an homage to Tom Godwin's Cold Equations, but it started out as me just not having any kind of idea how to write hard science fiction. So I went to the one that was the most inspired and, and really moved me the most. It was purely about physics and science, and yet it had this Incredibly touching and sad story around it, and, and I wanted to do the same thing. So, I, I, as I was putting together, you know, the old equations, uh, it became almost a puzzle. And uh, it, that is truly an epistolary piece, and because its messages that are sent back and forth. And, and again, this is a craft dis- discussion, so I can kind of talk about the challenge I looked at. So, my first thought was, let's just put this girl on a flight where the the underlying assumption is that no one knows about time dilation. So she's going on a joy ride. So she stows away, much like the girl in the quote equation stows away. And when she comes back from this joy ride, for her it's just, you know, maybe a year, or maybe it's six months. But all of her friends are like twenty years older. All of her friends are you know and I thought, man, that's really that's amazing. But the more I thought about that 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 's exactly the plot of the cold equations. The girl stows away and and because of her ignorance, tragedy happens. So I wanted to do something different and uh, you know, I still wanted to use time dilation, so I thought that was important, and I just took the next step, which was. If you have two people in different areas and time dilation occurs, what's how? What's the most tragic thing you can come up with? And I thought of a married couple being separated over time and, and the ignorance of what time dilation can do. How does that affect their relationship? And the last piece was when I sat down and I said – uh, how can I make it even more tragic? And the idea of communication, you know, the, <laughs> fact that they, the fact that they know this is happening and just the moment where they feel like they can kind of talk their way through it, they can't talk anymore, I thought was the final step. So that was kind of a, a constructed piece. It wasn't designed necessarily to be a, uh, you know, uh, a, a message-based uh, epistolary piece. It was it was a story where that made the most sense to kind of pursue. So let's fast forward to the Requiem and the Key of Prose. That came from a, a conversation with Ken Liu, who's a friend of mine. Ken and I, you know, critique each other's stories. And Ken is, uh, I mean, he's a genius. And he's, con- you know, he'll constantly talk about where people will badly critique work and they'll say passive voice. And they'll just X out a whole section. And there's no description of why the passive voice was bad. And they'll uh, they'll say, uh, you know, uh, uh, white room syndrome and they'll go through and, and they'll make all of these broad comments without a, any kind of context to them. And the reality, you know, and, and Dave, you know this, these aren't negative things. These are tools in the toolbox that you can use for good or ill. And the fact that many people use them for ill doesn't make them bad tools. It's just, there are tools that are used badly. So as I was thinking about, I was getting, I, 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 I was critiquing a piece and, uh, I happened to see comments from some other people on it. And I, I, I wasn't, I don't really get angry. I'm a pretty chill guy as I'm taking my third <laughs> shot here. So, uh, the, uh, it just it it annoyed me that I was seeing comments that really had no relevance. Now tie this in. You mentioned that I went to the Viable Paradise uh, workshop. While I was there, Jim McDonald critiqued the first chapter. Well, actually, the first two chapters of Tommy Black, and the uh, he asked about the third chapter. And the third chapter is uses a lot of passive voice. And he's like, and, and he didn't say it was bad. He said why? And I think a lot of critique people, it, you know, before you just say this is bad, one of the questions you can ask is. I don't understand why you're doing this. Why are you doing this? And if they don't know why they're doing it, then it probably is bad. Right. There's always an opportunity that maybe they have a reason for doing that. And it's your own blinders against it. That's, that's happening. Well, but when you, and when you ask why, and then the writer says,
0: well, I was, I was trying to achieve this, this, this emotional tone. Then you can say, okay, well, yes, use this, but, and, and now it's a collaboration. Now you can start getting some back and forth and take the, the, the experience of the veteran uh, and apply it to this, particular passage
2: that can still use that bad thing, but to good effect. And how much more educational is that conversation over over just a, oh, I can't use passive voice?
0: We'll be back with more of our conversation with Jake Kerr after this brief promotional break. When the writer C.S. Lewis died, his family began to burn all of the writing he left behind. Fortunately, several boxes were rescued and in them was an unfinished novel about a dystopian society in a parallel universe. Because he never finished the story, no one would ever know what happened in the strange world he described. No one would know until now.
2: The sort of time travel you read about in books, time travel of the body, is absolutely impossible. I
0: myself have traveled into the future. We've
2: seen this many times.
0: The first man is doing some kind of ritual. We need to switch them back before this one grows a stinger. What
1: we can see in these images frightens me. I shudder to think about it.
0: The Sting of the Dark Tower, an audio drama by Peter Grunbaum. Listen to it for free at coiledstories.com.
2: now let's get back to the conversation with Jake Kerr so i was i was talking and it was funny i had almost a, probably a 2 hour conversation with jim just about technique and uh, over just starting from that, that ground. So th- let's go back to the original narrative, as it were, of Requiem in the Key of Prose. So I, I had this critique piece cross my desk, and I was re- two things came together. One, I was angry that, that people are getting bad critique advice, which is don't use all the tools in the toolbox because they're bad. And the second piece was, I, I, one of my biggest, uh, inspirations is Edgar Rice Burroughs, and probably the single most, uh, you know, Influential piece of fiction is, for me, is the beginning of the land that time forgot. And to remind your readers who haven't read it, at the beginning of the land of th- that time forgot, A man is walking along the beach, and he picks up a bottle. And in that bottle is the manuscript from the person who is in Pellucidor, the the land that time forgot. And he starts reading it. And one of the things, you know, he's talking to the reader. He's broken the fourth wall, and he's talking about, hey, I I found this manuscript, and I'm about to share it with you. And one of the comments he makes is, you'll forget I exist within two pages. And, And that kind of, like, authorial chutzpah of, I'm the narrator. I'm telling you the story. This story is so fucking awesome. You're going to forget (laughs) how it exists in two pages. And Edgar Rice Burroughs pulls it off. I mean, he is that brilliant, a storyteller. Now, you could you could joke about his prose. You can say he's exposition king. You could go on and on. But the fact is, he's one of the best storytellers of all time. His characters will live long after many people that we call classics. His characters are timeless because he's a timeless storyteller. So going back to Requiem the Key of Prose, I was like, I want to take this concept that these are bad things or let's use all of the things and kind of put them in. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the reader and I'm going to say, I'm using this technique. I'm going to get in your face and use this technique. But this technique, and it's quite – I'm happy to admit it's total arrogance. I said, I'm going to use this technique so well and this story is going to so move you. That by the end of the story, you're going to forget that every step of the way, I told you what I was doing. I mean, it's it's not unlike what uh, t- Penn and Teller do. You know, hey, here's the magic trick. This is how we're going to do it. And then they do the trick, and there's some magic there that you don't even understand, and you're still amazed. Right. That was the challenge I gave myself for Requiem and the Key of Prose. You know, all of those kind of melange of pieces came together in that story. And, you know, if there's a lesson there, again, getting back to the craft discussion, if there's a lesson there, it's like pick your inspirations wherever they come. I mean, they can be you're pissed off at another writer for doing something poorly. They can be <laughs> something inspired you and you want to copy their story, but do it in a new way. They can be, you know, uh, you know, uh, you read a critique and something that critique fired you off. You know, those sparks you cherish them. It Doesn't matter where they come from, and and you should use them. And that's what I did in Reckoning and Pros. So it it comes across as this metafiction piece that that uh, is, you know, if you hate it, it's a gimmick, and if you love it, it's it's kind of metafiction in in a new way for science fiction. But the reality is, I was channeling Edgar Rice Burroughs through being angry at a critique piece.
1: All right, <laughs> that's so, that sounds like um, the current novel that I'm writing. I read um, a piece by another author that I said, no, no, no. This, you, you took this great premise and and you totally trashed it and said I can do better.
2: There you go. Oh my gosh, Terry! What a segue. Uh, we're going It takes me right to uh, <laughs> biographical fragments: of the life of Julian Prince. So, I was reading a story that is actually a fine story. It's it's a really good story, and and it was told. In kind of relief, where it, the main character was not mentioned, really, you don't hear from it. It wasn't a pure narrative. It was, it was kind of like a uh, uh, his eulogy and things like that. And I really liked it. But toward the middle, it fell into a, a, a traditional narrative. He spoke. There was dialogue, and I felt really disappointed. I, I, I kind of loved being the one who's putting the story together. I was like, I was getting hints, but all of a sudden it's almost like the writer lost faith in him or herself and decided that that had to be a real story. And I was like, man, I, you know, there's all this potential here. I have to kind of follow it up. So, uh, you know, uh, again, it's, it's, it's not so much arrogance is self-challenging. And I sat down as, could I write a story about this apocalyptic event that's, Global in destruction and massive in scale that that people would use that, you know, that uh, some kind of sci fi miniseries would be set around (laughs) and not describe it at all and not really talk about it at all. And could I make it very personal by focusing on a character who went through that apocalypse? And we never hear, you know, we never really hear his voice. We never get into his head. It's all like descriptions of that guy's character. So I, I really wanted to, and this, again, was very conscious. I wanted to create a pure white space piece where the reader, you know, I'm a very big believer in reading as a collaborative experience with the writer. You know, I'm writing pieces where the reader's going to th- see things that I didn't put there, but you know what? I did put them there. The reader just found them. And in this case, I wanted to be very overt about it. I wanted the the reader to, Put the emotion there, put the description there, put you know think of this global apocalypse and and fill all the details him, him or herself and and that 's what I wrote so I wrote a five thousand word piece where it 's about this global apocalyptic event and a guy who 's this uh, major literary figure, and i didn 't really describe either, and yet they 're there so, well
0: and, and the really the real strength I think of that is is you know and again i I really don 't think it plays as well in audio one of the, one of the rare occurrences where a piece is actually better served being read than being performed because your reader your contemporary reader is used to going to wikipedia and reading articles and experiencing the world through that lens of of uh, journalistic media on the internet and by framing the story in in that framework you you instantly like something clicks in the reader's mind and instantly they're looking, they're actually investing in the story as though it were a journalistic piece. And, and that was, that was sly and subtle, my man.
2: Uh, that was nicely done. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, early on you were talking about, Hey, do you go out and try to kind of do these things? I, f- after I wrote, um, I guess it was record. it might have been after I wrote biographical fragments, but I, I had, I kind of sat down and I felt like I was pigeonholing myself as this experimental guy. And, uh, I, I, you know, very consciously started writing straight narrative stories and, uh, uh, perspective is one that was in Fireside. And, uh, after writing a few of them, uh, most of which didn't sell, uh, but I think it was because the kind of inspiration I was using for them, wasn't pure. It was me being defensive, not me being creative. And, uh, and, and that, that was a lesson for me as well. You, you don't second guess yourself. If, if, if what you're doing rings true and, and the readers like it, uh, there's no reason to say, I'm going to be pigeonholed or I need to expand my horizons. You know, when to expand your horizons is when the horizons look better than where they're at right now.
0: Ooh. Imminently quotable. I'm putting that on a t shirt, man. You
1: should. <laughs> I read a book by, uh, John Ringo called The Centurion that I didn't particularly care for but it was interesting because it was an action adventure written in the form of blog posts. Ooh,
0: very cool.
1: I thought that's a very different. It didn't work for me but it was it was very innovative. Yeah.
0: Well, and and I have another I have an experience I forget the author's name. He did he did the McNally uh novels. Uh James Saunders maybe? I'm not sure. But there was a there was a crime novel that he wrote that was purely comprised of Transcripts of interviews police reports and mm-hmm. and journalistic pieces and it was brilliant and and because you 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 broke that traditional narrative and and now you're inviting people to draw upon their own experience or or what they think of their, as their experience of these events it, it ties it more closely I think it makes it a more intimate uh,
2: uh, literary event. You know, no no one reads Dracula anymore, which is unfortunate because that's another example of where yes. It's an epistolary novel written by letters. And you think of Dracula as this ominous, you know, the uh the dark clad uh uh Dracula, you know, coming down the staircase or something like that, when that novel is all written in letters. And uh it's it's interesting. The you know, again, getting back to the craft, the 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 writer's toolbox is broad and deep. There's a lot of things you can do with it you know, sit down and just let the story decide where you want to go and, and, and try not to to uh, limit yourself. Absolutely.
1: There's no such thing as failure. There's only experience. Yeah. I cannot
2: agree with that more. I, I you know the uh, the wonderful line from Michael Jordan, you know, I've I failed like ten thousand times and that is why I succeed is it, it could not be more true. Sure.
1: I'd like I, I hear that you work intimately with a critique group I've never, I have never. I have beta readers, but I've never worked with an actual critique group, and I'd like to hear what your experience with them was like. You know, one of the great things about a critique
2: group, especially a live one, and this goes really well with what we were talking about earlier about the collaborative nature of a critique. You know, when someone says that's passive voice and they move on, when you're in a critique group, and uh, generally in a critique group, the, they'll go, everybody will go, ra- go around and kind of comment on the piece. Uh, in, in an intimate group, they'll, they'll go in some, some amount of detail. And then at the end, the, the author is, uh, is allowed to comment. But one of the things you find, and this is, this is incredibly valuable, people will argue So you'll have one person say that, I I thought these characters were flat. I really didn't get their motivation. And then another person will say, no, 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 you missed it. Did you think of this? And as an author, as you're sitting there watching people actually argue over your fiction, two things happen. One, you get a much better view in terms of what your authorial intent is and if it's coming across, and you're also, you get this really kind of rush that These people are arguing over your fiction. They're discussing the pluses and minuses, and if the the one person is supporting your authorial intent and the other one is against it, you're you're kind of suddenly rooting for the one and and (laughs) hope that comes fast. And, and, And it's really kind of neat. But at the end of the day, that kind of robust conversation, I think, is much more helpful than uh, a, a single comment of, you know, uh, too much description, purple prose, you know, you, you get to see the context of those comments in, in real life action. And and you're allowed to comment afterwards. Well, in at least the group I'm in, you're ha- you have five minutes where you can ask questions. And that's valuable as well, because I can go to someone and say, you didn't hear this. Is it, you know, I, I laid these clues. Were they not obvious enough? And that person might say, I didn't get it. Someone else in the room will say, I got it. And then right there in front of you, you have almost a uh, like a focus group where like eight people will say i totally got that that person's crazy you know and it's uh, like i said there's a dynamic there that doesn't exist uh just in, in sending out documents and getting track changes documents back what
0: do you think the difference between beta readers and a critique group is
2: I don't think there's a, you know, at least in my experience, uh, you know, I I think those definitions are individual. I think there's probably someone who says, you know, I use a critique group for, uh, you know, structural questions. I use a beta reader for developmental draft questions for bigger picture questions. Uh, It's it's really hard to answer that question because I think it's different for everybody. Mm. For me, the beta reader and the critique group are actually the same thing. I, I send my biggest problem. And I think this is true of most writers is I don't know what my problems are. If I, if I knew, I wouldn't have them, you know, that, you know, it would be perfect. <laughs> right. So when I send a document out for someone to critique, uh, I want them to point out things that I missed. And it, it, generally that's not like grammar and things like that. Those, I, I, can, I have one person who's really good with that. I don't necessarily need that. I need someone who's going to say, I, I don't understand the motivation here or what, it, you know, maybe I have a subplot that I think is really obvious, but it's subtle. You know, it's, it's very clear, but it's subtle. And, Everybody reads it and no one gets that it's a subplot. They just think this is some random character I have there. So that is a blind spot. I thought I was being clear, but I wasn't. And there's a lot of instances like that where having that objective feedback makes you better because, you know, none of us know what our what our mistakes are.
0: Sure, until somebody else points them out. Terry, did, did is that your experience with your beta readers that 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 your your blind spots are revealed and and the things that you couldn't possibly notice because of wherever you are in your headspace, uh, get illuminated that way?
1: Unfortunately, mostly not. Um, I, I get some general commentary on, on things that work and things that, that don't work, but it tends to be much more where I've made a grammar mistake or where I've written something muddily. I don't really get the big picture thing. It's, it's one of the reasons that i'm I'm probably going to go to a uh, professional editor before too long and try to get a little bit more insight into what I may be doing wrong okay and that's I, no criticism. that's no criticism by the way of of my beta readers. They do a wonderful job
2: I have a uh, when I wrote Tommy Black and uh, I had it in finished form it went through multiple revisions in many critique groups and I sent it off to uh, a friend of mine to read. And she sent it back with uh, with a broad comment saying, like, uh, basically, Tommy's Tommy's too passive and this other character is taking all of his good scenes. And the moment she said that, it was very, you know, I went back, the, the novel was almost like ready to go to print and i went back and i and and i basically rewrote it from scratch removing the character who's kind of like a father figure for tommy i i just cut him right out of the novel and took all of his activity and actions and put them on tommy novel is so much better and it, it it all came down to someone pointing out to me you know your hero isn't very heroic because all these other people are doing things for him and i was like well i wanted him to be helpless and kind of like you know, innately passive, but I didn't want him to be totally passive. And that's the kind of things that, uh, you know, Terry, I, I I think you really need to find someone who can do that. I, I think everybody will have, even if it's not in one novel or another or a story at some point in time, you're going to have someone you know, uh, who will, will, you know, and unfortunately, I've had this happen with stuff I've published. They would come back and they'd say, Hey, have you thought about this? Uh, I, I was just thinking this. And, and they don't mean it to be mean. They're just kind of like, Hey, I kind of thought, you know, about this story. And I'll be like, Oh my God, that is like, why didn't I think of that? You know, and you're like, ah, oh, it's too late for me. to read for it's, it's already out there. So I don't know. I and maybe I'm just uh, maybe I don't like my stuff as as much as I should. But uh. <laughs> I think that's true of most writers.
1: I think that's true. That's definitely true of me. I'm not a good judge of my own work. Uh, other people tell me they like it. I, I always look at it and go, oh, here's the flaws. They looked and see the uh, okay. positives.
2: You know, t- Terry, tell me if this has happened to you before. I've had someone, you know, bi- a biographical fragments is a good example. I-, I sent that out for critique and I had two different people send it back and say they-, they were focusing on the fragments. They're like, you didn't put enough, and they were very much focused on the structure. They're like, there aren't enough fragments here. It's not crazy enough. I wanted to see like his laundry list. I wanted to see this and I wanted to see that. And, you know, I I, I saw that as a fundamental misunderstanding of what the goal of the story was. It was a story. It wasn't fragments. It was fragments that created the story. And uh, like his laundry list would serve no purpose at pushing the story forward. So I was able to really safely ignore that advice. But what's really funny is if it was a story about fragments and it was meant to be that kind of gimmicky story, it would have been perfectly good advice. And those are tough to sometimes kind of figure out. I don't know if that happens to you, Terry, where you're sitting there going like, man, is that good advice or bad advice? I'm not so sure. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely so. I've I've gotten different kinds of advice, and I have to parse through and say which one is right for the story that I'm trying to tell and try to figure out whether or not the concern is actually valid or of enough merit to go ahead and warrant me making a big change.
2: Do you ever send questions back and say, hey, what did you mean here, or did you get that, or does, yes. does your think ever become collaborative?
1: Yeah, yes, I think Absolutely.
2: Did you ever have an instance where you uh you know went to a critique person and they asked a question and when you followed or they they pointed to something as an issue and when you followed up with a question they had like an aha moment and then they were like man I didn't read that close enough?
1: No, I haven't had that yet.
2: I, no, that that, I, that doesn't happen often cuz you know to be honest critiquers always looking for flaws. Uh but sometimes it will happen. I had that happen with a, a story that was printed in uh, the War Stories anthology where uh the person was reading it and uh, it was very negative uh review and at a critique, I should say. And at the end he, he sent it off to me and I I wrote back and I was like, well, did you think of, you know, did you think of the perspective of him being, uh, like having some kind of post-traumatic, uh, you know, he's just, you know, his, his point of view is not of a gung ho warrior. It's of someone who's just sick of war. Uh, and it was just a stupid question. I was just like, I, I just touched out there and he wrote me back afterwards saying like, Oh my gosh, I reread the story and it's brilliant. I just, I, I don't know how I missed it. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know how, you know, how do you react to that? It was, did, did I, like, I can't say that to all my readers. I can't, like, put it at the beginning, hey, by the way, this story is about X. Right. So, you know, and again, Terry, we're always second guessing ourselves. It's like, well, you know, maybe I, I can't, like, hold their hand through the whole thing uh, yeah, without but the, putting it in. But,
0: but the stories that are received and, and, you know, you assume that publishing is, is also sort of a big green light that something worked. Uh, uh, but, but those stories that, that, that connect that hit, you know, you kind of have to, it, it's almost like you're a blind man and, and you're, you're wandering through and you're looking for a familiar piece of furniture or a wall. And, and that feedback that says, yes, I got this. Yes. Why this did this sense. work? Yeah. Exactly, and you you may not know, but but if you get enough pings back saying this is working for me, I like this. Eventually, you got to
2: put it out there. Yeah, no, I I could not agree with you more. I mean, let's be honest; it's the you know m- many writers. I I'm, I'm I can't say most, but you know many writers, possibly most. Just you know, they're very self conscious. I mean, they're putting themselves on paper and they're sending it out there, and it's very easy to second guess yourself. Even a, a, a modest comment about you know, uh, th- does this belong here? And, and you put your heart and soul in putting it there. And it's, <laughs> it, it's hard to say, okay, I don't suck, as opposed to I made a mistake. That's a really fine line, and it's, it's, it's hard for us as writers to really kind of understand that we can make mistakes and still not suck. Yeah.
1: You've got a camera, you're watching me, you're seeing my soul because that's how I feel <laughs> all too often sometimes. And I just have to trust that that the readers are seeing what's really there and I'm not.
0: Yeah. Gentlemen, I I, I hate to cut this short, but 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 our clock has actually gone into time dilation uh, and and is screaming at me from from light years away, which I can only assume means we're out of time. Uh, uh, Twenty minutes is is never enough. But this has been a a sterling discussion uh, and some some intriguing concepts brought forth. Jake Kerr, thank you, sir, so much for for stepping up and 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 engaging with us for a little bit and talking some crap. This has been awesome.
2: Oh, Dave, thank you and so much for the time. It's been a blast. I always love talking, writing, and and, and sharing thoughts with uh, fellow creative types. Terry, you're awesome. Uh, <laughs> thank Send you. send me a book to critique, and I'll uh, I'll add a few notes. Probably not very helpful, but I'll add notes anyway. And uh, you do the same. So we'll go from there. Ooh, Thanks, guys. Dude, badass.
1: Thanks. <laughs> I wanted so, to get you to come on uh, the Dead Robot Society sometime. I think you'd have fun there.
0: Absolutely.
2: Ah, oh, anytime. That's that would be a
0: blast. Very cool. Terry, there there was a lot of there's a, we were wandering some serious back alleys there, some intriguing stuff. What what's your takeaway on this episode?
1: My takeaway is that you've just got to trust that you're writing the story that's right for you and have somebody look over your shoulder and make sure you haven't lost your way. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, absolutely. We we write alone, but we don't have to be writers alone. Uh, so definitely, I'm I'm. You know, I'm down with the whole collaboration of of the the creative process. That's fabulous. Uh, for me, it was it was that affirmation of of using all of the tools in the writer's toolbox. Uh, uh, not not because you can, but in service to the story. Uh, uh, and that's you know, especially. There, there are times when you are writing and you hit those spots where it's like this just isn't working, and and maybe you know rooting through the toolbox, and and checking to see, well, could I try this? Could I try that? And and changing something dramatically, uh, it might not be perfect, but it might shake something loose. And just using all those tools, I think, is an important reminder uh, uh, to all of us as writers as we move forward. Awesome. Well, dear friends, here's the deal. That was a fabulous discussion. Uh uh, but but the, the hits just keep on coming, cause in seven days you guys come back, we'll have Jake back, and we're gonna take all of that 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 introspection and that that exploration of craft and, and storytelling and all of that marvelousness, and we're gonna apply it into a story workshop, and it's going to be fabulous. So do return in seven days for that. And I know seven days, really long time. Terry, what do you think our listeners should be doing in the next seven days to, to fill that gap of time?
1: Writing, of course duh (laughs) Uh. absolutely
0: get out there and do some writing put your stories out in the world and I will tell you as I always do you find what you're looking for so dear friends look for the good stuff look for the awesome the wow the oh hell yeah and I promise you if you go looking for it you will find it we will see you in just seven days until then you guys stay cool be frothy and be awesome and we'll talk to you soon bye 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 This episode is copyright 2014 by The Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for The Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of BroTown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us. Visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast and you can always email us at the table at roundtablepodcast.com thanks for listening